Back Power Users, episode 689, Apple-Sized Asteroids. Hello, everyone. This is David Sparks. I am joined by my pal and yours, Mr. Stephen Hackett. How are you today, Stephen? I'm good, David. How are you? Ah, man. Crazy week. You know how sometimes your house does things that just really gets in the way of your life? Uh, yes. That was me this week. I'm sorry. This week. Yeah. It's all good. All's well that ends well. But we had a uh, we had water issues this week. Mm. But it's all good. And I didn't even my Acara leak sensors didn't help me because the leak was under the house. So <laughs> well, did you put one down there now that it's all fixed? Yeah, I dug a six foot hole and uh, put in a car sensor in there, and I attached a uh, a big uh, one of those big batteries to it. You know, one of those like anchor super batteries. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just thinking next time that'll that'll tell me if there's a leak under there. You know, John, our friend John Syracuse says a lot of wise things, but I think the wisest thing he has said over the years is that moisture is the enemy of the homeowner. Oh, yeah, it is. It is. And, uh, man, I, I could talk about the story, but I will not. But it the, it almost could be a screenplay. Let's just mm-hmm. leave it at that. Anyway, uh, we are the Mac Power Users. I am David. You are Steven. And it is time for a feedback episode. We've had a ton of it lately, so we wanted to get through some of it. Uh, and we also have a couple small topics we like to save for the feedback episodes. One of them that Stephen and I have been kicking around is the idea of apple-sized asteroids. You know, I've been watching the stuff over at Facebook and how they change their name and they're pivoting the company. And a lot of these social media companies, they kind of have a rise and a fall. And it feels like Facebook is now trying to figure out what to do next. Apple is a hardware company. They're not quite as vulnerable, but there could be things that one day make Apple fear for its its existence and I thought it would be fun to talk about that. So that's one of the things we're going to talk about today. Yeah, we got we got a bunch of good stuff today. And in More Power Users, which is the uh, extra segment for members, we're going to talk about the Make Something Wonderful book put out by the Steve Jobs Archive. We've spent some time with that and have some thoughts, and that'll be uh, at the end of the show for members. Yeah. Well, let's start with feedback. Cleaning tech products. Yeah. Uh, that, that is a, a frequent question. Dave wrote in, I know you love your stream decks. I use mine many times a day, so I'm right with you. The other day, I was cleaning it up and used a small alcohol swab on the keys of the stream deck, and it came out black. Gross. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> mine did not. I copied the experiment. Mine is perfectly fine. I guess I wash my hands more than Dave. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, Dave. Had to say. <laughs> yeah, mine came out pretty pretty clean. Uh, you know, you always end up with, with grime and stuff, and... Uh, we also had uh, a question from listener Brittany about the best way to clean AirPods. It doesn't matter who you are. AirPods yeah. get gross. That is a whole other can of worms. Mm. <laughs> like, uh, I, uh, I am the AirPod cleaner of the household, and there is a lot involved with cleaning AirPods for my family. It's a whole other uh, ball of wax, you could say. Yeah, uh, that's exactly what you could say. And, uh, you know... Um, some of my family members uh, generate more wax than others. Um, one of them generates so much wax that we always buy the Apple Care with the AirPods because, you know, there's gonna there's gonna be a replacement, you know, <laughs> after a little while because they just get so bad. But what I do for the the wax problem is if you just check about every six months um, and take a toothpick, you can 
get a lot of the wax buildup out there. Um, mm-hmm. The one that gets you though is the wax that gets through the grill, and then there's really nothing you can do about that. Yeah, yeah. The toothpick is a good a good suggestion. I have a little uh, like kind of metal loop. It's not really a pick, but like a little metal loop that came with my in ear monitors that I use to record, and they yeah. they've got the same problem. Clean those out every once in a while. Uh, Apple has a, a pair of support documents that we'll put them in the show notes. How to clean your AirPods, and then how to clean your Apple products, kind of more generally. And uh, there's some good information in here about displays and cables and iPhone accessories, all sorts of stuff. Um, you know, you want to be gentle. You don't want to use something real abrasive. Uh, Apple does have some uh, specific things about, you know, isopropyl alcohol wipes, Clorox, Clorox disinfecting wipes, that sort of thing. Uh, so I would recommend uh, checking those out, you know, maybe have it in your back pocket uh, when you get that tech support from from family. Uh, I just recently had a family member whose iPhone wasn't charging reliably. You know, they would like touch the cable and it would it would drop off. And very often that's due to lint or debris in the uh, the lightning port on the iPhone side in the uh, in the receiving side. And you can clean that out. You know, things happen. We're humans. The world is a messy place, and it's it's good to know. One thing I like to do with the AirPods case is on the hinge, it gets super dirty in my jeans pocket. And uh, I do take a Q-tip with a little bit of alcohol on it, and I just rub it around the edge once in a while. And that comes off shockingly dirty, just like Dave had with his stream deck. It was, it, I mean, I don't know how it gets so gross in there. Um, but it does. And uh, so I, I, I try to clean that every three or four months too. But I do think keeping AirPods clean can actually extend their lifespan because if the wax does get too far in there, they're they're just dead. They don't work anymore. Yeah, the sound gets muffled and, and you run into issues there. Um, I agree with you. More times than not, when I'm dealing with AirPods, it's the case that is uh, that is the grossest, you know, kind of under the lip and around the hinge and stuff and yeah the q-tip and alcohol is a is a good way to do it and like i said go check out those documents because apple has apple has a surprising amount to say about this back in ancient roman times whenever the emperor was paraded around rome i don't know if you knew this or not Stephen. a little bit of trivia they always had a slave sitting next to him in the chariot whispering in his ear memento mori meaning Mm -hmm. you know you know, you are going to remember you will die. You know, don't get too sold on your fame here. If you ever start feeling like you're hot stuff, this is my uh, this is my version of that. Turn your keyboard off, turn it upside down, and shake it over your desktop and see what falls out of it. <laughs> <laughs> you want to be reminded of of how normal you actually are. That's pretty gross. Yeah. So I, I clean the keyboard frequently because I am just kind of wound up about that. I don't like gunk in my keyboard and it is constantly getting gunk inside of it. And I don't even really eat at my desk. I don't know how it happens, but it gets super dirty. You know, for, for years, Apple sold a keyboard that was, I had a clear acrylic base. Oh yeah. So you could see what fell into it. Terrible yeah, idea. That, just, yeah. It was, <laughs> it was great for the first week. And after that, oh man, that was rough. And you could see stuff in there that you could never get out. Yep. It is taunting you forever. Yeah. Yeah, we also had some feedback about using iCloud uh, Plus for custom domained emails. You want to walk us through this? 
Yeah, uh, we you know, when you and I talked about it, we were kind of down on it. There were a few people that we heard from in the forums talking about using it, um, you know, using it for personal and business custom domains, and generally they were pretty happy with it. They had it just working just fine, and you know that one of them was even using it with Spark, which is going to another email app. So maybe we were uh, a little bit too uh, too down on that, you know. Mm-hmm. Additional features they were looking for were custom email signatures based on account, which it doesn't have, and a way to sort in the uh, iCloud account inbox. Um, I, I didn't mean to say you shouldn't do it. I think it's a good solution if you need it, but I really prefer to have my email separated and like on a separate email host. And uh, honestly, FastMail is so good. There have been days when I've thought about just moving my personal account into FastMail too, mm-hmm. but. Uh, I want to be using the iCloud stuff. I spend t- enough time talking about that on the show. I think I need to have my hands in it every day. Yeah. Yeah. We've all been to the hassle of trying to change an email address. It's just, you know, you can set up forward yeah. and try to reset, you know, change your accounts everywhere, but it, it can be a pain. Um, the other thing I saw people uh, talk about is um, the uh, sort of the management of this on the iCloud website. And we've talked about, iCloud.com before and how sometimes it's uh it's it's a little too simple in places, but also clunky in other ways. It's like this weird combination of things. Um, but uh having to deal with iCloud.com for all of this seems like a little bit of a, a drawback for me if you're doing a lot of a lot of management of these things, right? Like G Suite and Fastmail and other solutions. Uh Office 365, those other solutions have more robust dashboards and and administration tools than iCloud does. But if you're just a single person and want to just set up a couple of different email addresses, maybe maybe we were too hard on it. Yeah, you know, but it's funny because I put this feedback in the outline because I felt like we were a little too hard on it and we just both dumped on it again. So (laughs) there you go. I'm glad it's working for people it's working for. Yeah, I got an email from Mike saying, hey, Stephen, David, what are you guys doing with iPads these days? <laughs> he wrote, is David still at peace with his iPad? And I think he's referring to a year or two ago when I said I finally found my peace with the iPad and would stop complaining about what it can't do. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I like the email so much I put it in. Um, so I guess I should just say it. I, I'm at peace. I uh, mean, the iPad, we have a great relationship together. I just realized that I can't expect uh, him to do as much work for me as I always wanted him to. And that made us friends again. Hmm. Uh, In terms of iPads themselves, uh, I've got the 12.9 inch one. It's aging. Um, I don't know what year it is, but it's of the new design. But I think the first year of the new design and it's 12.9. It sits on my desk as the desk uh, status board. And I've talked about that in prior shows, but just the short version of that is I have it with an always on display. So I turned off the thing where it turns things off, but automatically. And then I put on um, like a bunch of widgets on there so I can see the current weather and my OmniFocus tasks and all that other stuff. And uh, it does a great job with that. And I also run apps on it. Like if I want to have YouTube running in the background, if I'm, catching something on YouTube, I often have that running rather than use it on my main display. I also, sometimes if weather gets rough, I'll put the weather app full screen. Um, 
I just have all sorts of little apps here. Like we have the, I still have the Eufy stuff and the Eufy app I'll put on there. Like with this last week with everything going on, I had a bunch of people wandering around my house and doing stuff. Uh, when I went into work, I would put the Eufy app on the iPad and it was like a security monitor station where mm-hmm. I could see the cameras of what people were doing. So it's just, you know, it fills a lot of niches for me. I don't pull it out of that position very often. Once in a while, I'll pull it out and treat it like a proper iPad, but largely it's become that status board. And then we've had a lot of iPads shuffling around the house as people in the house needed them. Currently, I'm in possession of the iPad mini. My 11-inch got taken away from me by my wife. And it's all good. I mean, having a little portable iPad is great. I don't just use it to consume content. I uh, I like to do day one entries on it. I like to manage OmniFocus. I even do some email and other things on it. Uh, a lot of it is dictation-based. The I think Stephen will talk about the iPad mini's merits in a minute, but one of them that I really like is I feel like typing on that thing is really easy. Um, yeah. But uh, that, that's my situation. I I'm perfectly happy with it. What was getting me in trouble, honestly, is for years I kept trying to make it do all the stuff my Mac could, and it's just not. It's just Mm -hmm. not that. Apple doesn't view it that way. And once I shifted the bits in my head to stop thinking about it that way, uh, we were at peace. Yeah, I think think your take on that, I think that was in the Six Colors Report card a few years ago, I think was was really smart because, I mean – even like Federico, you know, Mr. iPad has sort of followed you in this route of of looking at other platforms because the iPad just isn't giving him what he wants and needs out of it. And whatever Apple's vision for iPad OS is, uh, I think there are a lot of people who want it to go further. And for whatever reason, they're they've been unable to to push into some areas with it. But my iPad situation is the same as it's been. I only have the mini. Uh, like you, we had a shuffling of iPads. And my uh, 11-inch iPad Pro went to my wife, and she's had it with the keyboard case and everything for months now. And I, I really do like the mini. And the, the typing thing, it seems counterintuitive until you turn it into portrait and type yeah. with your thumbs. And then it's fast. And you can really fly on it. And, you know... Honestly, I think the portrait, I think portrait makes the most sense on the iPad mini. I think it makes more sense than some of the other iPads. And the keyboard in landscape for me is just the wrong size on the mini. But, you know, iPad OS is great at rotation and you can just turn it around and uh, and, and go to town with it. So uh, I, like you, am, am using it for uh, more than just consum- consumption. That is its main fit in my life. It's reading and, and watching stuff. But uh, also dealing with Slack and Discord and day one and some of those other things, it's it's really great at. And mine has, uh, I've got the cellular one, and that's also really nice. Uh, I really am a big proponent of cellular iPads if you're going to ever take it out of the house. Because, you know, tethering is is fine. And, you know, I've got tethering on my, like, big family AT&T plan. But it's so convenient to have a cellular iPad. And mine has a T-Mobile SIM card in it. They were having some data-only special at some point the last year that I jumped on. It was on AT&T before that. Uh, But now I'm kind of also back in the space of, okay, my phone and iPad are on different carriers. And sometimes, sometimes that's nice too, especially when traveling. But 
the mini has a special place in my heart. You know, uh, I think the bigger iPads are, are great machines and in some ways better than ever. In other ways, kind of more confusing than ever. <laughs> but the the mini, there's just something about it that I really love. And the fact that it's basically the size of a, you know, a thin book or a thin notebook and you can just carry it with you really easily. It's pretty fantastic. Yeah, and it really pairs nicely, honestly, with a, with a MacBook Air if you yeah. go on the road and you really want to have both things. Mm-hmm. Although I wish the MacBook Air also had a cellular option. That would be kind of oh, awesome. I know. I was yeah. so hopeful about that going into Apple Silicon. It's like, it's right there. It's just right there. And I understand like they would need to do some things in macOS, but I really think, I really, really think people would find that useful. And you're on the silicon now. It's not like before yeah, no. where uh, they were on Intel and maybe that you could be used as like, well, we got to do more work and integration, even though there are x86 notebooks out there with cellular connectivity. But now with Apple Silicon, it, it, it makes it all the more painful to me. I would be, I'd be all about it. Even on my, you know, my MacBook Pro, which is my only uh, Mac now, I would totally do cellular and pay for it just so I could use it absolutely anywhere. Yeah, as we record this, I'm going out of town for a few days, and I'll be bringing the MacBook Air and the Mac and the iPad Mini with me. And I was thinking, would I replace the 12.9-inch if it just suddenly died on me? Mm-hmm. Even though I don't really use it as a carry-around iPad, I really use it at my desk all day, and I think I would. I, I'm not sure if I would buy the latest and greatest. I might look for a used one. Yeah. But I really like this second screen. And, you know, when Apple added the universal control, so now I can just pull my mouse over it and drive it with my mouse and my keyboard. It's it's really nice. I mean, if anybody listening has a second iPad in a drawer, you should really try to set it up next to your desktop machine or your laptop desk or however, whatever mm-hmm. your main workstation is it, it it really is nice and then you can get clever with notifications and things so like you can keep them on the ipad but not on your mac there's a lot of interesting angles to it and if it's just collecting dust why not yeah honestly even the mini makes for an okay sort of secondary little computer at your desk you know you mentioned yeah. having your cameras up i've been in the same situation and i'll have my ipad mini with i use ring so the ring app open and you know it's plugged in and just so I can keep an eye on things, like if I'm waiting on a delivery that I really, you know, if I need to sign for something, because my studio is behind my house. If someone's at the front door, I'll get the notification on my phone. But if my phone's, you know, face down on the desk, like it is right now, we're charging or something, I may not see it. So even the mini, I think you could build a case for using it as sort of a status board secondary machine at your desk. I don't think it's as good at that as the bigger iPads are because you just have more space. But I've really come around on your whole thing of iPad as a little helper, a little buddy for your Mac when you're at work. So there you are. I'm at peace. Good. I'm glad. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by 1Password. Go to onepassword.com slash MPU and get 20% off your personal or family plan. The internet can be a scary place. There's a lot of people out there that are trying to break into your privacy and steal your passwords and otherwise cause mayhem in your life. You need someone at your back that can protect you, and that is 1Password. 
I've known these guys for years, and they are obsessive about protecting you on the internet. It's not just passwords. It's also the secure vault and the watchtower that looks at the vendors you deal with and make sure they haven't been hacked. One password is kind of an all-in-one solution to protect you on the internet. Both Stephen and I are subscribers, and we love it. Uh, they've got plans for you for your personal, business, enterprise, family accounts. I have a family account. I really like it because I'm able to share it with my kids. And I also just like the ability to share passwords with my wife and family without really having any friction at all. One of my favorite features in 1Password is the Secure Vault. I use that almost daily. It's a bed of text files you can put into 1Password, but you can also put images and files in it too. But you're able to keep this Secure Vault on your 1Password database, which really is protected by a second wall of privacy on your phone and iPad and Mac and everything. So if people get into your device, they still don't get into your Secure Vault. Things I use that for are things like my medical information, financial information. Like I've got all the banking details in there. Like if I ever need the the account numbers or whatever, I can just go in there and get it. I also keep the kids' social security numbers in there as well. It's just a really nice place to put information that I want to keep that nobody can get to except me. It's really helpful. And just one more thing you get with 1Password. But don't take my word for it. Go check it out if you go to onepasswordcom slash MPU. Once again, onepasswordcom slash MPU. That'll get you a 20% off your plan. You can see all the many benefits they have from it and check it out. Uh, 1Password's been a sponsor of the Mac Power user for a long time. We really appreciate it. But more than that, Stephen and I are users. We really believe in it. And I encourage you to check it out and start protecting yourself, your family, and your coworkers today. Thanks, 1Password, for all of your support of the Mac Power users. Our last feedback episode, I spoke about uh, my dabbling with Obsidian. So I'm taking a class this semester, and it is we meet weekly, sometimes twice a week. There's, it's like it is literally like being back in school for for just one semester, uh, taking notes, doing lots of reading. And I wanted a an application to put all of my notes and material in, basically totally separate from anything else I use. And I was like, well, Obsidian seems like a really great solution for this. I can do all of its like fancy connections if I want, but it, it'll be a silo that it's just there by itself because I have everything else in Apple Notes. I will admit that I didn't last very long <laughs> in Obsidian. I, I think for the Steven, this, you are breaking my heart. I know. You're literally I know. breaking my heart. And I think it's the same reason, uh, for the same reasons I've bounced off of it before. And it's just that while I love fiddly things, Obsidian crosses some sort of mental threshold for me uh, that I I sort of struggle with. It's fiddliness. That plus, I think the second reason is I ended up, just like in Apple Notes, ended up having a lot more mixed media than I thought I would. Sort of initially I thought, okay, I may have some PDFs, but this is basically just going to be notes that I've taken. And how it's unfolded is I have a lot more PDFs than I thought I did, but I also have, you know, images of the whiteboard and sketches and that sort of stuff. And Obsidian can do all of that, right? Like you can have attachments in Obsidian and in the preview mode, or if you have a plugin, like it will show you that all in line. But there was just kind of more friction around that than I than I wanted. And so I've uh, I've bounced off of it yet again. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. Dude. 
I, you know, when I, when you told me that it, I was like, Oh man. Cause like, if that doesn't taking a class doesn't make obsidian stick for you, honestly, nothing ever. Will. You should just, <laughs> just have that delete thought. it now and just <laughs> stop it. You know? Yeah. Okay. So I will, let me just take apart what you're, what okay. you're saying. Uh, mixed media obsidian does it. It doesn't do it as well as other tools. And mm-hmm. I get this question all the time. People say, well, what about dev and think uh, I use dev and think for all that stuff. You know, I, yeah. because dev and think is amazing at file management and, and the artificial intelligence element. And it's really good at that, but obsidian is equally good as a thinking tool in dealing with text, you know, and uh, I I've talked about this before in different forms, but I feel like there's a a curve to obsidian. You first get it and you're like, Oh, this is kind of cool. And then it starts to sink into you just how powerful it is. And then you say, well, I don't need any other software. I'm going to run my task manager and my calendar and my diary and everything else in the world in obsidian and you can kind of do it but what you end up with is kind of a worse version of everything but the data is all combined in my mm-hmm. opinion and then usually you dial back and then the third phase is where you're like okay i don't think i should do everything in obsidian but there are certain things that's good at and like taking a class putting your thoughts together about reading materials linking your thinking as nick milo would say yeah <laughs> um, there there is nothing better than obsidian for that that's why i thought this was the perfect use for you so mm-hmm. It's okay. I, you know, I just, I just feel that um, it could have been a good tool for you, but not, you know, not everything works for everybody. And the fiddliness I would argue back on the obsidian out of the box experience is not that fiddly. Um, Where it gets fiddly is if you go down the rabbit hole of extensions and you can really turn it, you can customize the app a great deal. But if you don't like fiddliness, just don't do that. You know, just use it as it's, yeah. I mean, the, the current version is excellent. They they brought in some of the third-party extension developers into the company. So, like, the people who made some of the best-looking user interfaces for it are now working on the user interface that ships with the app and things like that. So, And some of the best third-party extensions got incorporated into the app. So I will argue back with you on fiddliness. But, um, and I, whatever, you know, use what tool works for you. But I, I do think that it was a, a good option for you. I wish you had hung in there just the, for the whole semester, just to like see if it landed. But mm-hmm. I also understand you're trying to learn stuff. You don't want to be fighting against your software. I'm not yeah. going to give you too much of a hard time about it. Yeah, no, no, I I appreciate that, and I did have the thought of like, well, if it's not now, it's probably literally never. Yeah, I, I was also impressed because last time I tried Obsidian was probably a year ago, and. You know, I didn't have it on my new machine, so I installed it, and I was imme- I immediately noticed, oh, a bunch of stuff you had to have plugins for or tweak just to make it more livable, that's just out of the box now. Like, you are 100% right about that. I think they've done a great job at the initial experience getting you much further down the road in terms of what you need to, to make it livable. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was in beta a year ago, and yeah. now it's a 1.0, so... Mm-hmm. But the stuff that it looks good out of the box and it's got all the primary tools you need out of the box and it's fine. You know, you tried it. I'm glad you tried it. And um, I still think it's a great app, but I'm at that third level with Obsidian now where I'm not trying to use it to do everything, but I am using it as a thinking tool and I find it extremely valuable. You know, it's um, uh, Tiago Forte has this whole thing he does called the external brain. I think he calls it. 
Well, Obsidian for me is really the external brain. It allows me to collect things. I mean, earlier today during the show, I made a, a quick bit about the Momente Mori story. Well, I had written that down in Obsidian. You know, I, years ago, I'd written it down. I thought it was really interesting that a Roman emperor it still has to be reminded of his mortality at the moment of his greatest glory. I like that, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? And when it came up on the show, I just took a second and did one search in Obsidian and I had had it on my fingertips. Yeah. Now, maybe uh, there was a time when I could hold all of that in the onboard RAM, but it I can't now, so <laughs> I use Obsidian. But the interesting thing is when I go to that page, I see a bunch of other pages with other things I've read and found interesting linking to that. And mm-hmm. like, it is a really useful thinking tool. Now, um, what did you do in lieu of Obsidian? Evernote. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, you're just kidding. <laughs> my my eyes just like bulge. We yeah. don't do a video, but if we had done video, that would have been pretty humorous. <laughs> no, I ended up in our in our friend Craft, uh, which is a fantastic Mac and iOS app, and it's on the web now and it's all over the place. But uh, the the primary reason again is I wanted it separate from everything else. Uh, but one thing that I have kind of, I kind of forgotten about craft cause I used it for all my notes for a while and then went back to Apple notes. Cause we were going to talk about, you know, we had a big focus on first party apps on the show. One of the things I love about craft is it's sort of visual nature. So one thing I've been able to do is some of these, um, some of these longer documents do things like have it in, sections that I can collapse and and again you can do most of that or all of that in obsidian but with craft it seems uh, a little bit a little bit nicer another thing I also like about craft is the really the ease of sharing a page with somebody else right so if someone missed a class and you know they wanted to, to see my notes or something like that I can just right click and give them a URL and I'm done with it yeah, craft is so much better at sharing. Although I think like complicated page stuff, um, you will you would find Obsidian if you once you got good at Obsidian, you'd find it easier. I think yeah. and better in Obsidian. But but so I mean that I like the story because me too. Like I I use craft a lot. I'm in it every day now, and we on Team Max Sparky those those people that are helping me out have access to my whole craft database. Mm-hmm. And we, because they have a comment feature in it where I can just say, like, um, um, JF helps me release. We do a podcast every Friday in the Max Berkey Labs where it's like the only place I talk about news. And um, and so we do a short one and I, I record it and I send a comment to JF, say, hey, it's ready for edit. And he'll go through and edit it. And all that stuff just happens seamlessly in the background. Uh, to me, you know, a lot of people would go to Notion or some tool like that, but yeah. Craft is is Mac friendly. It looks good on the Mac. It's probably not as powerful as Obsidian or Notion, but it has the tools I need for a team working on a team. Mm-hmm. And it does have links. It does. I mean, there's a lot of, of things Craft does. Craft is a light version of Notion, a light version of Obsidian, and for a lot of people, that's good enough. Yeah, one of the things I, I found myself doing quite a bit actually is getting the direct link to a block in craft and then yeah. linking that to something else. Right. So yeah, deep, deep links, maybe. Yeah. yeah. So say I have a document about, uh, you know, topic a, and I reference topic a somewhere else, I can just bounce over there, grab the link. And then when I'm studying later, I can kind of move around it 
uh, a little bit a little bit more easily. And that that's enough of the interlinking for my needs. I know with Obsidian you can really like go deep in on that. I'm yeah. I'm fine with that being a, a sort of manual thing every every once in a while as I need it. And and really yeah. it's it's met my needs really well. I've been I've been quite happy with it. And like you said, it is really Mac friendly and it's great on the iPhone and iPad as well. You know, I think we talked about the iPad mini a second ago. Uh, there have been times where I've just like had the iPad mini open, just reading over stuff and, you know, it all, it's all fantastic looking and all formatted nicely. We've said this before. It's probably the best Mac catalyst app, or at least the most complex that is good. And I got to hand it to them. There are a couple things here and there that feel a little weird on the Mac, but I don't think it's their fault. I think they've done absolutely everything they can to make this as as seamless as a Mac app as it can be. And it's uh, it's been good. It's been a good fit, and I'm happy that I've returned to it for this like, sort of limited scope project. And you know, to tie back to the earlier segment about me being at peace with the iPad, uh, even though I'm not trying to get as much out of the iPad as I used to, I do lean toward solutions that give me the iPad as an option. Like, yeah. Um, I talk about me going and working at Disneyland. Sometimes I'll drive Daisy to work and I'll stay there and just sit there all day and work and just to get out of the house. And I do that whole day off an iPad mini. You know, I got a little iClever keyboard. I think it's like 30 bucks. It folds in half, fits in my pocket and an iPad mini. And I can go and craft and write blog posts and do all sorts of stuff there uh, because I'm using a, a platform that's friendly to mobile and the Mac. The same goes for shortcuts. I mean, there are some things that I've moved out of Keyboard Maestro uh, simply because I'd like to be able to do them on mobile devices too. I've moved them into shortcuts where it makes sense. Uh, a lot of the project setup things I do, I'd like to be able to kick it off on the iPad or the or the iPhone. So mm-hmm. um, you do find yourself reaching towards tools sometimes that may not be as powerful, but the multi-platform gives them a separate kind of power. And I understand Obsidian is also on mobile, but it's not as good on mobile. It's yeah. you know that's something where Craft is clearly superior to Obsidian. Oh, a hundred percent. Obsidian, especially on the iPhone, is kind of weird. Well, it, yeah, I guess I should clarify. Obsidian. One of the the really wonderful things about Obsidian is that the way it's written, almost all of the third party plugins and everything work on iPhone, iPad, and Mac. So it's it's feature compliant across the board. Um, I haven't heard Federico talk about this lately, but I know that was like a big deal to him that they would write a plugin and he could use it on any device. Mm-hmm. Um, but the look of the app is just kind of odd, you know, because it's an Electron app and it does not feel like a native app on the iPad. I mean, it feels more like a native app on the Mac and it doesn't even really feel like a native app there, but it, it feels it, it's closer mm-hmm. on the iPad it's a strange, uh, it's a strange world. On yeah. the iPad. One thing that I'm not utilizing in craft, but I like a lot conceptually is different spaces and obsidian. You could do different vaults where basically you have kind of different instances within the application. And so for instance, if I decide at some point that I wanted to put all of my other notes into craft again, which I don't think I'm going to do, but I could have a space for school and a space for work and a space for home. And I can move between those spaces and only kind of see what is in that, that one space or that one instance. And that's something that, again, you can totally do with obsidian, 
but you can't do with a lot of other things. And, and Devin think you could kind of do it like open and closing databases, but that's a little bit clunky. Uh, in Apple Notes, it's just like, <laughs> it's all there, right? And I keep work and private notes, uh, you know, personal notes all together. I, now I do use, I have several uh, folders in Apple Notes that things go into, but if you really want some like better separation I think that's a, a a nice feature of these applications kind of above what the stock notes app can do. Yeah. So for me, it's kind of boiled down to personal notes go into Apple notes work. My work team is all based on a single craft instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I find it kind of annoying, frankly, that craft like craft has the command O search feature, which yeah. I, I first experienced that in obsidian. I don't know who started that first. But it's a powerful feature. You hit Commando and then you just type a search and it finds any document basically for you. Um, I wish Obsidian would search across databases because I, I, I toyed with putting some personal stuff into Craft, but the process of switching between databases was too tedious. And, and honestly, I want to be spending a lot of time in notes too because our listeners are interested. So, um, so I've kind of really separated them, but... I like craft. You know what I really like is that email I get from craft about every six weeks. It says, Hey, here's all the new stuff we just added. Yeah. I mean, it is, it never fails to deliver something I want. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they are working hard on improving that app. Definitely. They, they've got a Slack channel and a lot of community stuff. You can leave feedback really easily. They seem to be building something that they know their users want. And uh, we said it a lot, a lot of times, Apple Notes has come a really long way, but if there's something you want in Apple Notes or reminders or mail or whatever, you get one shot a year for your pet feature. Usually, usually, usually. Where a third party sometimes every two years. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. if it's mail, it's every seventeen years. But if if you're using one of these third parties, you may not, you may still not get what you want, but you have a lot more opportunities to get it throughout the year and. Uh, I don't want to go too far down the sidetrack today, but I really do think that there's a version of all of this where Apple didn't tie all of its features to its OS release every year. And I understand why they do that, right? It makes sense for them in a lot of ways, but it means that if you're waiting on the one thing, you only get one shot. And and it means, honestly, it means that smaller features, you know, more sort of fiddly features that somebody may want, they're less likely to happen. Because if you have one big release a year, you're going to focus on big stuff. And sometimes the little stuff, or honestly, sometimes the bugs, hang out for way too long. And that's a little, uh, a little frustrating sometimes, but it's just kind of how the company works. The other thing I, I will always appreciate about Craft is when that first kind of emerged... Uh, to an extent, you can call me a reporter. I, I wrote them and asked about their plan for end-to-end encryption because I know a lot of the people that follow me are professionals and have secret data they can't share. Yeah, and they wrote me back and said, "No, we're we just don't have that on the map. You know, we're not going to be doing that." Mm-hmm. You know, and and they, you know, so often I'll ask about security features from companies, and they'll say. Uh, we, you know, we're definitely going to do that and that's coming. And then like three years will go by and they still haven't done it. And there are definite examples of people who have misrepresented to me their intention about doing something that I think they had no intention of doing. I always appreciate them 
just being honest with me about it and say, no, we're not going to do that. So yeah, you shouldn't put stuff in here that if it needs in-date encryption, then you shouldn't use our product for that. And like, gosh, honesty. Yeah, I'll take it. Mm-hmm. One big thing it lacks that, that I wish it would have is full offline like caching. And so yeah. if you have a PDF or something and it's not already cached on your device, you can't download it if you're offline. Now, how big of a deal that is to you just depends. Um, you know, I use Apple Notes, for example, to track events and travel. So I have a WBDC 23 note and I have my PDFs of, you know, my flight information and my hotel and stuff. And if I were on an airplane and needed to see that and it was in craft, uh, I, I'm not guaranteed that I can. And that's something that I, I wrote to them a year ago. And I th- I don't know, I don't want to quote the answer because it's been a long time. I don't have it handy, but it's still not there as one thing I looked at. Now with my current use of it, not a big deal at all, but it is something to be aware of if you find yourself without internet connectivity often. I would say though, with the thing like you're talking about, like a travel note where you're going to have a bunch of PDFs attached, maybe some pictures and map images and all that. I think Apple notes is clearly the winner for yeah. that. And uh, that type of data, I would say Apple notes is gold craft is silver and obsidian is bronze. All three of them can do the job, but I would, uh, I would use Apple notes for something like that. Uh, but collaboration for this kind of linked note system. Uh, if you like the Apple ecosystem, I just don't think there's, you know, craft is the one to beat. It's, it's really good. This episode of Mac Power Users is made possible by SaneBox, a really cool email service that learns what is important to you and filters out everything that isn't, saving you hours each week. Now, this works with all kinds of email programs and services. You don't have to have a special app. You don't have to leave a Mac running in your closet to make sure your rules are working. Uh, It works online, and that means you can switch Email apps, you know, if you want to do that without any additional stress. Sanebox has some great email filtering. Here are just some examples. They're saying later. This keeps your inbox clean with what only really matters. And that means you can go in there and deal with the other stuff on your own terms. There's a sane black hole. You drag messages in there and you will never hear from the sender again. Then there's snoozing and reminders. This is great if you need to defer an email to the next business day or maybe the weekend. And if you CC a bunch of reminder emails, like one week at samebox.com, if your receiver doesn't reply, you'll get a reminder in one week. It's really awesome. And it's more than just filtering. You can move attachments to Dropbox and other cloud services as well if you're running low on space with your email provider. Samebox has various pricing plans starting as low as about $4 a month, and there's a 14-day free trial to check it out. I honestly could not deal with my email without SaneBox. And my guess is you're going to love it too because two-thirds of MPU listeners who try the SaneBox trial end up subscribing. And when you do, you receive a $25 credit. Just go to SaneBox.com MPU. Once again, that's SaneBox.com MPU to receive a $25 credit on any plan. Our thanks to SaneBox for their support of the show. All right, version control on Mac OS. Nathan wrote in, my legal practice focuses on commercial real estate, and as a result, I work with long, complicated agreements, which are often emailed back and forth between clients, opposing counsel, and myself. 
My firm has a Windows-only proprietary document management system. He says, I won't name names, but you've probably heard of it, and I'm pretty sure I know exactly what he's talking about. But it allows him to save multiple versions of a document, which can then be compared with redlining software. And he's looking for ways to move out of that system um, to do something on the Mac. David, how did you manage this as a lawyer? Well, I, I know the program he's talking about, and it does automatic comparisons for you. But I always found it pretty shaky. Now, I hope, Nathan, that that Windows software is working for you. But I never had good luck with it. Um, what I did as a lawyer was I made my own version control system, which is not probably the answer he wants to hear. But I have a, um, I would make a document and then I would put, I would go crazy in the name of the document. And I would put the document and I would put the date with the, uh, what's that format called? It, you know, it's the year dash month dash mm-hmm. date format. Yeah. And then, and then I would put a description of the editor in it. And I had a text expander snippet that I would send to opposing counsel to say, here's a document. Um, do me a favor. Um, if you make changes, make a copy and name it the same way. And then I would also always send them a PDF at the same time. So it would be like a word document plus a PDF of it as sent. Um, and generally that worked for me, you know, and then if the opposing counsel was half competent, they would do the same thing. They would send it back to me with the new name and the PDF of the red lines is in word. You can have it show the red lines in the document. So there was an audit trail. It wasn't as easy as a proprietary software that does the audit trail for you, but I generally worked with lawyers that um, were trustworthy enough that it wasn't a problem but I could always follow it with the PDFs. And I got to that point probably about 10 years before I stopped practicing law. And I did it consistently and honestly really rarely had problems. Now there are lawyers out there that will try and take advantage of that. And you know, those are the ones you got to watch out for, but, um, but you kind of know those people when you meet them, you know what I mean? Yeah. Sadly, yeah. there are there are some people that are in the law profession for the wrong reasons and and um, are unethical. But the uh, but you know, in that case, you know, I just didn't really run into one of those during that ten years I was doing it that way. What would I have done if somebody made a change without telling me? Or like, because you could go on, you could go theoretically in Microsoft Word and um, and make a change and then accept the change in a way that the other person doesn't see that it was changed. I guess what I would do in that case is I would say that in order for me to proceed with that person, I will be the only editor of the document and they'll just have to give me a list of the things they want to change. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the way I would probably handle it. But, and, and there's a lot of listeners that listen to our show that are lawyers. And I know the public perception is that lawyers are shady, but honestly, most lawyers are not. Most lawyers are really um, fastidious and, careful about stuff like that. So I, I don't think it would be that often that you would have someone try to pull a fast one. Yeah. But, but my system was simplified and the, the trick was the name, you know, you kept the primary name of the document and I guess even people who aren't lawyers, but just have multiple um, copies of a document. So you have the primary name and then you have the date of that edition in the name. And I know that the file has the date in it, but the point of that date in the name 
is to say this is the last time this was worked on. Yeah. So then you can look at them to see which one's the most current. And then then I put another dash and just say, you know, Sparks edits or original draft or final version or something in it. So someone looking through a list of these files could see the date that it was done and what it represents. Mm-hmm. Like I would I would make one that say Sparks edits and then I would send it to Steven and Steven would have one maybe with the same date, but it would say Hackett edits. And then if I had more edits that same day, I would say Spark edits, you know, two, you know. And so it's not that hard to look at them in a folder and understand what they are. Yeah, it's just a, a verbose naming system to keep up with things. Yeah, but I mean, that works. That works. I mean, it's you can do that now. Yeah. I remember the days when it was seven digits and, a, and an extension yeah. back in the old yeah. PC days. It's not that anymore, but people still treat it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I, I'm very semantic in my file naming as well. Um, not that I'm doing a lot of a lot of documents necessarily, but in things like uh, design work or even you know exports for a podcast. You know, if I'm working on something and maybe someone needs to listen to it, I'll be very descriptive in my file name. And and one reason I, I do that is that file names are less likely to change out from under me. Where if you're just relying on the, the the date creation, you know, in the file system, well, if that gets slung around to a bunch of different people, that could change out from under you, and you not you not really realize it. And so the file name, like, someone has to change that <laughs> on purpose, and if they don't, then everything will be will be as it was. So I, I I definitely dig this system, and I think it's uh, I think it's the way to go. Now, if you're working internally with a team, there's other things you can do too. Like if you're using all Apple gear, you can use uh, file tags or flags, you know, just a colored mm-hmm. tag to represent status. Like I used to use a red, yellow, green status system on files when I was working with another person. And like red meant stay away. I'm working on this. And then green meant, okay, you can go in and take a look at it now. And so we would, um, we would use like color matching and then you could go into the finder and it would just show up. The problem with that is some of the cloud services, I'm looking at you Dropbox, sometimes strip the tags out and then you have a problem. Yeah. Although I'm not sure if that's a, a, a problem anymore with Dropbox. I haven't, I haven't looked into it now for a few years, but but you know you you can get issues. A, a file name is not going to get changed. It's like the most basic, but probably the most secure way to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think as long as you're consistent with it, kind of within your own system, you'll be able to understand what what past you did. You know, I'm definitely a big fan of the using the date and time to uh, to mark things, and I have a text expander snippets to to do that and to take care of that for me. So it, it can be consistent. So yeah, I think, I think this is all, all good advice. Uh, you know, ultimately you're kind of sometimes just stuck with what the boss <laughs> makes you do. And, and that is what it is. But if you do have control over, I think this is, this is some good advice. I mean, it's even harder for Nathan because he's dealing with other lawyers and mm-hmm. I know what that's like. I mean, I remember I had a, contract I negotiate with another lawyer who was still using word perfect for PC. Yeah. And I, I made a joke about it on the show it was a couple of years ago now, but I, I was just, I couldn't believe 
And he says, he said to me, well, what's wrong with WordPerfect on PC? I'm like, well, the fact that the PC you're running on it is basically open to every hacker on the planet. I mean, <laughs> that was software that was designed in an era where there wasn't hacking, yeah. you know? So, uh, but either way, some people, uh, so you got to kind of roll with, with them where they are at. Yeah. Um, getting client buy-in is hard. I represented a lot of Apple people because you know who I am. And even some of them didn't want to use pages, you know? Mm-hmm. So I would, I'd work where they did. I had one, uh, several clients that were software developers that wanted everything done in Google Docs. You know, it just, you kind of got, got to go where people go, but that, that makes these solutions that I'm talking about even better in some ways, because you can actually bring that type of workflow to any platform. Um, but I get it. Also, there's a, another problem for lawyers is if you get in a bigger size firm, they have their own document control system where even just in the firm, they have special numbers and coding and things that go into documents as they get generated. So there's just a lot of, um, it can be a really a hassle for, for lawyers. I understand you, Nathan, my heart goes out to you. One thing we didn't uh, talk about in this section is some of Apple's apps like, like pages have version management built in. I don't think it's for full version control, but basically every time you save a document, pages saves a new version and then you know you can you can revert back to them and and go through them and that sort of thing. It looks kind of like time machine in a weird way. Yeah. But I think manually doing it the way you're talking about is easier to manage when you have documents going back and forth because all of that is in just the one document right it's just in the one pages document and if some if you email that to somebody and they they open it in word and resave it then it's all gone and then you're stuck without the history it, it's when you involve other people that it gets hard yep <laughs> you know obsidian's telling me hell is other people was by jean-paul sartre so <laughs> there you go now that i've got it open i'm just a wealth of knowledge here today there you I'm go like power users there you go i, I do think that uh, it's something that's a difficult and, and there aren't a lot of great solutions on the Mac in a profession like the law. There are a lot of pre canned solutions on PC, but I've got a whole rant in me about, um, overcomplicated legal software that most of our audience has no care about. I'm not going to go there today, but, but the, uh, the vendors that serve the legal profession are doing a huge disservice to lawyers in my opinion. I'll just leave it at that. We also need to uh, touch base on some more contact stuff. We, yeah. we just talked about contacts and lightly touched on calendars in a recent episode. And I think the most overwhelming bit of feedback we got was, why doesn't contact sharing, why isn't that part of iCloud family? Which is something we talked about on the show. And I totally agree, especially because we've had calendar sharing for so long. And I was thinking, well, what would this look like? What would it be like if Apple were to add contact family sharing? And I realized the answer is actually in photos. Like I could yeah, see. Yeah, I was just thinking that. Yeah. yeah. You would open contacts and you would have your personal contacts database. And then anyone you drug into the family database, anyone who had access to that could see them and edit them and move, you know, move them in and out again, you know, just like, uh, just like photos. I think that would be simple enough. People could could grock it, and it would. I would. I would love it. 
Yeah. And it's, it solves the problem of uncle Ralph changes his phone number and you change it in your database, but your wife doesn't change it in hers. So now she doesn't have uncle Ralph's phone number anymore. Uh, if you had it on a shared database, one person fixes it and then it's done. Yeah. It'd be, it'd be fantastic. And, you know, I was thinking after the show is like the, the number one person I share contacts with it's Mary. Like it's not friends. It's not coworkers. It's my spouse. And I would love not to have to do that anymore. Yeah. Um, and like, do you think that's on the whiteboard? I, mean, I you would think hope that's something Apple is working on. I, I don't working on, I don't know, but I would, uh, I would hope so. I, I would hope that they feel this need as well. And, it seems relatively, I mean, it seems simpler than photo sharing, right? It's, yeah. See, I yeah. mean, I'm not a developer. It seems easier than photo sharing. It also seems somehow more universal than that, too. I think there are people who don't want to mix photo libraries, but this seems like something that people would really, uh, would really find useful, even if it was as simple as you just have a family bucket and this contacts are in there and everyone has access to them. Like, it doesn't have to be any more than that, I don't think. Yeah. I agree. I agree. I hope they're working on it too, because I feel like for the longest time, Apple was just trying to find its footing with a shared data and cloud services, but they're there now. They're good at it now. And I feel like this is stuff that got, you know, left on the whiteboard as they were just trying to keep, keep the, you know, the patient from bleeding out on the table. But now, now things are going pretty well with cloud sharing. I, I'd like to see them go back to some features like this and, and improve it. Mm-hmm. I also think it's a form of lock-in. I mean, once you're, you're, you know, you and your spouse are used to having all of your shared contacts like that, it just works, you know, to quote Apple, right? Um, then you're going to be lo- less likely to move to a different platform. Yeah. Whether it just be like Google services or even just a, an entirely different hardware platform. Right. Because you've got your contacts, just like the photos works the same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ro- Robert wrote in, I think via the feedback form on the website, which thank you everyone who has been been using that. It is it is so much easier for us to manage feedback that way. If yes. you're not familiar with that, there's a link in the show notes every week, and it's also on the website uh, to submit feedback to the show. There's a form, and uh, we collect all that in our CMS. But uh, Robert wrote, I love Contacts, the app, and I'm used to it and don't want to go to a third party. Uh, their spouse is even less inclined to change. And how they get around this is sharing contacts under a single Apple ID, which if you have to share contacts for whatever reason or you really want to, that's really the only way to do it in any automatic fashion. So you have, you know, someone's Apple ID signed into all of your devices and contacts are turned on. Now, that leads to other complications, right? <laughs> if you're signed into an iCloud account, all the other stuff is there and available too. Maybe that's not a big deal to you. Um, but maybe it is. And so, yes, that works. And But, you know, Robert said, you know, we're looking forward to doing things like photo sharing. Why is it contact sharing a thing? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly right. So there's got to be a better way. Surely Apple knows people do things like what Robert's family is doing to work around this. And uh, just, I really hope they address it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I really like your solution. Just, you know, put it, a, a family shared contacts group there you know and just anything you put in there the whole family gets to see yeah uh i uh i like the note we got in about uh when you share a contact card and the notes field 
Yeah. Yeah. Once in a while, man, we get it wrong. We do. So I mentioned that, uh, I think I, I think I did. I think I was wrong that when sharing a contact, I will like cut the notes out, share the contact and then paste them back in. Cause usually my notes are like not something I want to share with somebody. Right. Uh, but we got a bunch of feedback, first of all, saying, well, actually, uh, there's some ways around that. You don't have to do it that way. When you, someone said that when you share a contact card, the notes field is not included. Well, it's it's a bit more complicated than that. So I spent some time last night. I had my MacBook Pro and my iPhone and my wife's iPhone. And I was like, okay, I'm going to move contacts around and see what happens. So this is how this works. On macOS, by default, if you share a contact out of the contacts application, it sends a V card. A V card is the file type for an individual contact record. It's .vcf if you ever see it in Finder. By default, on macOS, contacts will include the notes field when you share a contact. But you can turn it off in the settings for the contact app. So if you open contacts and open settings in the vcard segment, there's a little checkbox, export notes in vcards, and you can uncheck it. And once that's unchecked, you share a contact, the notes field does not go with it. Uh, there's also a setting, by the way, in here to export photos in vcards uh, if you want the contact photo to go with it or not. And again, that's up to you and how you use your contacts. So that's how it works on the Mac. However, though, if you <laughs> are making the export as a backup, you want those turned on because you want to be able to get your notes back if you ever have to re-import or move to a different platform. So yeah. there's a very different, sometimes you're going to want those boxes checked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. iOS, I think, handles this a little bit better. I don't know when this was added to iOS. So I'm on currently, the current release is iOS 16.3 or maybe even 0.4 now, but whatever the current version of iOS is, I don't know when this was added. But if you're in the contacts app on iOS and you go to share a contact, you get a screen and the screen has all the fields that have data in them for the contact. You can just go tap, tap, tap and turn them on and off before you share. So this is more flexible than what's on the Mac because it's per export and because you can control more than just the notes field. So for example, say that somebody needed your information, David, and I was going to give it to them, but I have your home address and maybe I don't want to give that away. On iOS, I could just untap the little home address field and that doesn't go with the V card when it gets sent off. I think that's a better way. It's a, more work each time, but you're sure about what you're sharing, I think, in a way that macOS is a little a little bit broader with. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And uh, it doesn't surprise me that they've got it figured out more on mobile than on the Mac. Which, which I think, I mean, I think that's the context of contact sharing for a lot of people. And I know I think we both spoke about how we do most of our contact management on the Mac, but I get the sense like out in the world we're the minority in that. Yeah. And I think that giving you just, Hey, a little pop-up of like, Hey, this is what you're going to send. It makes me a lot more confident that I'm not sharing information that I shouldn't, or that, you know, someone would rather not have shared. And so I would like the contacts app on the Mac to pick this up. And, you know, maybe if at some point they replace it with a catalyst version of the iPad app, maybe that comes along for the ride. 
I feel like my takeaway from this kind of exploration down the contacts road over the last month is that this is an app that really could use some love from Apple. I mean, it's yeah. adequate as it is, but it could definitely be better. Mm-hmm. I, I I totally agree. It's it's more or less what it's been for twenty years, really. I mean, yeah, they've added stuff, but it's it is not fundamentally different, and it definitely hasn't made the strides like notes and reminders and others have had. Yeah, and in those twenty years, I mean, the foundation of the Mac of the Apple operating system has shifted. I mean, it used to be the truth was on your on your Mac, and now yeah. the truth is in the cloud. So it needs to acknowledge that and build in tools that take advantage of that. But yeah, I still haven't left it, but uh, it could be better. Yeah, Chadwick wrote in, and he uh, he is making it better with a third party app. He's been using an app called Contact Sync by Donald Lawton for many years to keep his Google contacts and iCloud contacts in sync. Every couple of days, he runs an app on his iPad, uh, and it two-way syncs his Google and iCloud uh, contacts databases. Mm -hmm. And they also have Outlook 365 Sync 2. I actually, one of the very first apps I ever reviewed on the internet back in like 2007 was an app that did something like this. I think it was called Easy Sync or something. And the idea was of combining Exchange and Google and Apple contacts Mm -hmm. together. Um, that, that can make sense. It just depends on how, what your underlying strategy is. When I was, yeah. um, at, working at the firm, we had the stuff in exchange and I had my personal stuff in, in Apple iCloud and I really didn't want them to be mixed. Mm-hmm. Um, but if, if you're okay with mixing them, there are solutions out there. It sounds like contact sync is a good one Yeah, uh, with Chadwick's been using it for a couple of years. Well, I think it can even be simpler than that. I was thinking about my use case where I have all my contacts in iCloud, but I don't use iCloud email. I use Gmail for my personal email. Yeah. And and that means yeah. if I ever end up with Gmail on the web, my contacts there are just kind of like whatever Google's put together. Because we spoke about on that episode, Google makes suggested contacts based on who you email and all that sort of stuff. But say that I had a PC at work and I use Gmail on the web for my personal email at work, you know, to check in on things. This tool could be really useful in that situation where you are you are you are using multiple ecosystems and want data to be in sync between them. And yeah, there have been, to your point, several apps that do this. But Contact Sync seems to have been around a long time. I was reading through its reviews, people seem to really like it, it seems to get the job done well. So if you're in that situation where your ecosystem is kind of splintered between different things then contact sync may make life a little bit better for you. So during that show, we both were bemoaning that our contacts were overloaded with old contacts. We don't need anymore. Have you done anything to clean them out since we recorded that? No, (laughs) nope. (laughs) Me me either. (laughs) Me either. And it was funny. We got feedback from people like I have 40 contacts. And then someone else was like, I have 4,000. I was like, okay, I don't feel so bad about, (laughs) about mine. Like I'm just somewhere in the middle of that. Yeah, I feel like I'm as likely to clean my contacts out as Steven is to start using Obsidian on a daily basis at this point. Yeah, like it just is what it is. They just hang out in there forever. It's totally fine. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by ZocDoc. Go to ZocDoc.com MPU and find the right doctor right now. And you can sign up for free. It sucks when you go to a doctor's appointment expecting to be the center of attention and then your doctor seems like they have better things to do. Instead of listening to you intently, asking you how you feel, and helping you along, 
The doctor is checking the clock. On ZocDoc, you'll find quality doctors who focus on you, listen to you, and prioritize your care. ZocDoc is the only free app that lets you find and book doctors who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, are available when you need them, and treat almost every condition under the sun. I can tell you from personal experience it is really hard to thread that needle of getting a doctor that you like who's also on your insurance, and ZocDoc solves the problem for you. It threads the needle for you because it gives you a list of doctors that are on your plan, but also gives you patient reviews so you can get an idea whether or not this is someone you want to work with. It's really important that you feel comfortable with your doctor, and ZocDoc makes that possible. So no more doctor roulette or scouring the internet for questionable reviews. With ZocDoc, you have a trusted guide to connect you to your favorite doctor you haven't met yet. Millions of people use ZocDoc's free app to find and book doctors in their neighborhood who are patient-reviewed and fits their needs and schedule just right. So go to ZocDoc.com MPU and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That's ZocDoc.com MPU. ZocDoc.com slash MPU, and our thanks to ZocDoc for their support of the Mac Power users and all of Relay FM. All right, so I, I like this idea of Apple-sized asteroids. Not, not that I like the idea of Apple getting hit by an asteroid, but I like thinking about the idea of it. Um, as I said at the top of the show, with social media platforms, I feel like they all have asteroids headed toward them. Whatever is most popular today What's going to happen is in a few years, the new kids are going to think that that one's no good because the old people use it, right? It's mm-hmm. just inevitable that there's going to be turnover in social media platforms. Not to mention, you know, the environment of social media platforms, I think, are changing fundamentally anyway. Um, so those companies do have kind of a rise and a fall. Apple had a rise and a fall. You know, at one point they were, you know, circling the drain back in. I guess the mid nineties uh, before Steve jobs came back and they had a bunch of changes. Uh, Apple very likely could have been bought up or broken up or gone bankrupt. Uh, but the modern Apple, a company that has got interest in uh, hardware manufacturing, software systems, um, you know, television networks, um, possibly, you know, augmented reality stuff, uh, uh, possibly cars. I mean, modern Apple, um, you know, every company has a lifespan, you know, I mean, remember Kodak was the king of the world and now they're, they're not, I mean, I feel yeah. like, you know, if you take a, over a long enough period of time, Apple is not going to be as big as they are now at some point. Have you ever given any thought to what, what would cause that? Yeah, I have. And I think, first of all, it's a, it's a really good point. Apple is what, 45 ish years old now. It's the old company in Silicon Valley. It it really is. And at the same time, it's also bigger than it's ever been in terms of headcount, you know, in terms of valuation that's up and down over the years. But they're way bigger than they were, let's say, a decade ago in terms of valuation and cash on hand and all that stuff. But nothing lasts forever. And ultimately, eventually something will come along and and bring them down a peg. You know, in technology, it happens all the time. You know, you mentioned Kodak. Kodak, technology company, before we knew what that was, right? Um, 
Yeah. And Apple definitely has large threats on the horizon that it, that it needs to deal with. I don't know if anyone can really prepare for, oh, this company comes out of nowhere and has a product that, that knocks us off our throne. How Facebook has dealt with that is acquisition, right? Instagram became popular, they bought Instagram. Uh, WhatsApp became popular, they bought WhatsApp. Only now do we see Meta, they rebranded. Only now do we see Meta trying to do something in the future on its own merit and not purchasing the work of somebody else. And I'm not discounting that as a model. Clearly, it has worked for them, right? It's super smart to buy Instagram, super smart to buy WhatsApp. But Apple doesn't really do that that often. They definitely make acquisitions, but they're not buying, you know, the analogy would be Apple buying uh, a company like nothing, right? Who's making smartphones and earbuds and stuff that are interesting products. It would be like Apple coming in and buying up, you know, apps like Craft or Obsidian to make notes better, right? Apple just doesn't do a lot of that. Definitely, they have a different view of how do you ward off threats than Meta does. Meta's answer is to write a check. Apple's is to basically ignore them or try to out-innovate them. But there are threats beyond just, oh, a new company comes on the scene, right? What do you have in mind here? Apple acquisitions are done to enhance an existing product. I think you know one of the best acquisitions they ever made was when they bought that um, that silicon company. Yeah, PA, I PA was that? Yeah, I mean, and they bought them with the intention of building their own silicon. And now you look a decade later, and Apple Silicon has made Apple the envy of the entire industry. So that mm-hmm. that's the kind of stuff they do. You see, they make acquisitions about camera sensors and like the stuff they're already making. Yeah. Um. I, but in terms of what could come and really wipe Apple out. I guess whatever replaces the iPhone is going to make a big dent in Apple because Apple makes half of its revenue off the iPhone. And what is the iPhone killer? Well, I don't think any of us have a crystal ball, so we don't know. Some people think it might be these AR glasses, not the VR thing you strap to your head, but a pair of glasses that replace an iPhone screen with a, you know, become a smart device on your head, on your face or contact lenses or something like that, or, or maybe it'll be a voice assistant that clips to your belt and talks in your ear. I, I don't know what it'll be. and uh, But I think Apple needs to be aware of what replaces the iPhone. And, and there's a history for this, right? They made the iPod, which was a huge success. And now the iPod barely exists because it was replaced by smartphones. But Apple disrupted itself there. They, they said, you know... The iPod is going to get beat out by mobile devices eventually, phones. So let's just make the iPhone yeah. and steal from ourselves, in essence, you know? Yeah, might as well be ours, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know what the iPhone killer is, but that's going to have a dramatic impact on Apple if yeah. they're not a piece of whatever it is, because that's half of their revenue. If everybody stopped buying iPhones, Apple would not be the company it is today. Mm-hmm. But if maybe everybody instead bought iContacts, you know, or whatever it is, you know, I mean, I don't know. Um, Apple, if Apple's in there, then, you know, they've got a shot. Um, will they take over? Will that next generation, will they have the answer that the iPhone was? I don't know. The iPhone was revolutionary. I mean, how many companies get the chance to make one revolutionary product? Will Apple make the next revolutionary product too? I don't know. Um, 
another thing on my list that I think is more long-term, but I think it is coming for them, is cloud-based computing. You know, one of the things that makes Apple great is that they have the software and the hardware combined into one thing. But what if through, you know, 10 years of iteration of artificial intelligence and um, a lot of technology, suddenly all the computing power we need in the world is on a server somewhere and, and, you know, wireless technology gets so good that you virtually can run a server farm from your pocket with a dumb device. Does Apple still have an argument to make that you should buy their device when their software isn't driving it? It's a real question. And it's something that I think we're already seeing in places because of Apple's, and it's a philosophy I agree with, philosophy of doing as much on device as possible and not in the cloud. But what we have now in the AI models, that can't run on a phone yet. Maybe it will eventually, but will it be too late at that point? I, I honestly don't know. Well, I mean, if we have a situation where servers are able to generate like a Tony Stark Jarvis type assistant that runs your life for you, um, and the Apple, you still can't share contacts with your family members, people are going to leave. Yeah, I mean, if the difference is big enough, the privacy thing isn't going to matter. I feel like only um, the the younger you are, the less you care about privacy is my general impression. You know, and so I'm talking 10, 20 years from now, if this stuff gets really advanced mm-hmm. uh, and Apple doesn't have an answer, you know, people will move on. Yeah. And uh, that that could be an iPhone killer, you know. Um, so I, I don't know, but that, that's what, that's the one that came up with me. You actually came up with something that's much more immediate. I, yeah. I think you have a pretty good idea too. Yeah. I think the, the next five years or so, maybe even less, I think the biggest threat to Apple is government regulation as a result of anti-competitive practices. So if we roll the clock back to 2008, they announced the iPhone app store. And they have all the rules around it. And in the years since, it has grown, I think, bigger than anyone ever thought it would be. And Apple's had to change and evolve the store. But they still have really uh, iron-fisted control over the App Store and that experience. And there's lots, don't hear what I'm not saying. There's lots of good things about that. I think overall, the good outweighs the bad. But the pressure from the market and the pressure from regulators to open that up to say, you are competing in an ecosystem that you also run, that's unfair. That's, that is potentially a really big deal. And we've seen Apple do a few things to try to soothe this over and certain it in certain markets and certain types of apps you can use outside payment and not go through in-app purchase. In certain situations, developers can earn more than the 70-30 split. So if you have a, uh, if you're a business that's less than a million dollars a year, you can be in the small business program and a subscription that's older than one year gets dropped to a 15% cut instead of 30. But that's not that's not enough, I don't think. And 
wherever you kind of fall on your opinion on that, I think it's it's clear that uh, a lot of politicians are looking at these tech companies, including Apple, and are going to to bring them down a notch. And I think, and I think one reason this is such an immediate threat is because it's one of the few things that both sides in the U.S. agree agree on in Congress that you have uh, senators and and House representatives from both parties talking about this, and we'll we'll see where that goes. Uh, I do think there are some changes that need to be made to the way Apple uh, manages the store. Do I think that sideloading is the answer or alternative app stores are the answer? I honestly don't know. Um, I think that at the very least, Apple's control over the in-app purchase payment methodology is something that needs to be more flexible. And ultimately, it's good for consumers. In-app purchase is there. It's secure. It uses your Apple ID, all that stuff. But it also makes the experience worse when you download an app and there's no button to go to the web to sign up for a Netflix account because Netflix, their business model can't sustain giving Apple 30% of their iOS signups. And so it creates friction and creates problems, economic problems for developers. And I don't know how that all that shakes out. I don't even really know what I think about it in terms of specific things Apple should change, but change is coming. And I would rather see Apple make the change of its own accord. I think I think these companies are should be better at self-governance here because, uh, at least in the U.S., the federal government d- doesn't have the expertise to make these like fine-grained decisions about these platforms. And laws don't change very often. And so if this comes down to Congress telling Apple, you have to allow sideloading, the way they do that could be really problematic. And if Apple would were to do it of its own accord, it could be less problematic and more flexible. And so I just wish that they would uh they would move in some of these directions under their own power and not be forced into change that is ultimately worse for everybody. Yeah. Although I don't think them, you know, regulations concerning the uh, the percentages to app developers is going to be like an asteroid hit to Apple. I think it's no. going to hurt, but it's not going to like wipe them out. Um, but I think the bigger topic of regulation is is very you know because you never know once the government starts regulating an industry where they stop. And I mean, do they start saying, "Well, iCloud and hardware are two different divisions and they need to be split up"? Or what, you just never know what the government is going to do, how far they're going to go down that rabbit hole. And I think a bigger question that come, came to my mind as you were talking is just this whole concept of nationalized technology. I mean, we live in an era where governments in the world seems to be becoming more polarized and national. It's not as much of a global economy as it was. It seems to be trending the other direction. And what's to stop countries in the world from saying, we don't want Apple devices in our country anymore. We're going to have our own people make phones that are made the way we want them made or, you know, countries telling you dictating to Apple that they have to make certain, you know, backdoors or whatever in their software. And Apple says no. And suddenly Apple's market goes from a global market to something less than a global market. And I think that would have a big impact on them. Yeah. So um, th- th- there are all sorts of things out there, but I feel like 
All of those are things that they could probably survive, but it would be a different company and it wouldn't probably be as big as it was. But I feel like in the long term, the technology that replaces the iPhone is the thing that Tim Cook should be thinking about at night. Because if he's not a part of that, whether it be cloud computing or contact lenses or whatever, if Apple's not a part of that, then they are going to go the way of the dodo. Mm-hmm. Well, I, th- I, I think we have seen their attempts at that. I think if you go back to the original Apple Watch keynote, which is just bananas in hindsight, dude, like this will do everything <laughs> your phone does. Yeah, it doesn't. <laughs> they they yeah. focused no, it. That was overpromised there, buddy. But I think the Apple Watch was maybe an attempt to fend off whatever whatever comes after the iPhone. I think that there are people who think the headset or like you said, what that set ultimately becomes like sort of AR glasses type thing. Maybe that's part of it too, right? Let's, let's have something here that is a, a hedge against the future of the smartphone. But we quoted John Sikus earlier. I'll quote Marco Arment now, like don't bet against the smartphone that it is a extremely difficult thing to knock off the iPhone, I think, or the smartphone in general. But Apple has to be looking at those things because, like you said, it's half their revenue. I mean, maybe the iPhone killer is a better iPhone, right? Um, there was a science fiction show on called Westworld a couple of years ago. Yeah. And they had basically iPhones in their pocket, but they'd pull it out and they would unfold it and it would turn into a tablet. And then they'd fold it back up and put it in their pocket and it was small. It was very small and like, you know, it was it was all made up science fiction, but... Honestly, I think most of the population is much more inclined to get something like that, that, you know, you pull out and turns into a bigger thing than put a contact lens in their eyeball, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I, I think that, you know, maybe um, part of the, the challenge for them is just to always keep the iPhone uh, the best product available for an uh, internet-connected thingy you put in your pocket. And, mm-hmm. and maybe that's the most important thing they need to spend money on. Um, but it's also that whole ecosystem around it, you know, the services and the contact syncing and all the other stuff we talk about on the show. You, you really, I mean, they are reaping huge rewards from being the best, but you know, the rest of the world is not sleeping. They need to keep it up if they're going to manage to stay on top. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Well, that's it for us. If you've got an idea of an apple size asteroid, put it in the, uh, go ahead and put it in the, uh, in the forums there. You can find them at talk.macpowerusers.com. We'd love to see what you have to say. Uh, always enjoy doing these feedback episodes with you, Stephen. We always find uh, some interesting topics to get into on them. Uh, stuff that doesn't fit in the main show, but I think is really relevant for Mac Power users. We want to thank our sponsors today, 1Password, SaneBox, and ZocDoc, and we'll see you next time.